0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 16, and in this audio I am going to discuss the first 15 verses, which describe, which report to us the parable of the shrewd manager, or the unjust steward, or the dishonest manager, depending on how you want to call it. The previous chapter we took up three parables, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the prodigal son, all of which were aimed at the unloving attitude of the Pharisees, who were not happy when people who were lost were found and come into the kingdom. Now, this parable here is also going to be aimed at the Pharisees, but aimed at another one of their unpleasant characteristics, their love for money. We start in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Now, who was Jesus speaking to? Well, it says his disciples. So he was speaking to his disciples. It doesn't mean necessarily the 12 apostles. In fact, in the NIV study Bibles cautiously says perhaps it was more than just the 12. But of course, a disciple is just a run-of-the-mill believer, whereas the 12 were the special apostles upon whom the foundation of the church was laid. But at any rate, he was talking to Christians, but more importantly than that, he was talking to Pharisees too, because we read in verse 14, the Pharisees listening to this started scoffing at Jesus because they were lovers of money. So this is directed at the Pharisees too, just like the previous chapter was. Now, John Gill says the rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his position refers to God, the steward, the manager of the steward refers to the pharisaical, the, the the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and so forth. They're managing his kingdom, and they're not doing a good job of it, squandering his possessions, which, of course, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing pretty much of, and so they demand an account. Now, having said this, I must point out that this parable has caused a lot of confusion. In fact, a lot of people say it's difficult. I have a quote here from Jameson Fawcett and Brown. He says, There have been many differing views on this parable. Well, I'm going to give you what I, my best shot at what I think it is, and always remembering that a parable has one main point. And if you start trying to interpret the details too much, you end up in a lot of trouble. We go to verse 3 and read through verse 7 of Luke 16. Then the manager said to himself, What should I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Of course, a Pharisee would be ashamed to beg, wouldn't he, because they were proud people. I'm not strong enough to dig. He's not exactly a manual laborer either. He's a scholar. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master, he asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write fifty. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, and told him, and write 80. Now, first of all, this parable never says that the master was unjust. I, somebody, one commentator I was reading says that it says the master was unjust. Well, I don't see that anywhere. Even if he was, and if he refers to God being in charge of the steward, the Pharisees, that really doesn't matter, because one time God would liken him, so Jesus likened the father to an unjust judge, remember, so... You know the the parallels only go so far, but at any rate, the the steward, the manager, is being kicked out not for fraud, but for mismanaging the estate, for squandering his possessions, not for fraud. Now, if he'd been if he had done been guilty of fraud, the manager likely would have taken him and gotten him executed or something, something serious. But here he just says, "I'm just going to fire you." So the man still had some authority for a while until he had to let go of his job and so that's when he started writing off debts to the debtors when it says he summoned one of his master's debtors and he and the debtor owed 100 measures of olive oil and then the manager said take it for us and write 50 what he's saying is i'm going to give you a receipt for 50 you you owe 100 but i'm going to write that down as paid in full when you give me 50 The English is not exactly clear here, but that's what he means. He's basically writing off the debt. He's giving him a haircut. It's just like when Donald Trump owed three quarters of a billion dollars for a gambling casino, the Taj Mahal, and he borrowed a bunch of money on 14% junk bonds because banks would not lend him money because they had more sense. And when, of course, the Taj Mahal could not make payments on all those notes, he got all the debtors around and said, okay, I, if I go down, you all go down, so you're going to have to take a haircut. And so each one of the creditors took back a portion of the capital they had lent him. And, of course, they forgo a lot of, for, uh, they forwent, I guess you would say, a lot of interest that they owed, that Trump owed them. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, it is disputed whether the manager's method of accounting was itself dishonest. I don't think it was dishonest. And the reason I say that is because the master actually got some of his debt back. Some people say that he might have just taken the principal on the loans there and not paid back the interest, in which case the master lost his interest, but he got his capital back, and he's probably glad to get it, depending on how bad the business situation was. The NIV study Bible says this is in dispute whether he was dishonest or not. He, he It could be said that he was dishonest because he was giving away what belonged to his master, but on the other hand you could say he was acting honestly because he was foregoing interest his master had no right to charge because the creditors were overcharging the creditor was overcharging the debtors in order to circumvent the usury laws. In other words, charge a whole bunch of capital pay me back at zero interest, but the the return the, the amount that's borrowed and returned is so much that it covers the interest so the interest is implied rather than stated. Well, that's a nice theory, but I don't believe this because I believe that it uh, only charity loans were required to have zero interest, not business loans. This doesn't sound like a charity loan to me. The NIV says that one debtor owed 100 measures of olive oil. 100 measures of olive oil, which the NIV translates as 800 gallons of olive oil. That's not a charity loan, folks. That's business and the other debtor owed 100 measures of wheat, and the NIV translates that as 1,000 bushels of wheat. That's not a charity loan. That's business. So if we assume that it was a business loan, and we assume that the steward is foregoing the interest on it in order to get the capital back, and we also assume that the creditors are in trouble, if we assume all that, and that's true, then the steward is not acting dishonestly. He's just acting smartly. Well, let me just say what I just told you actually is irrelevant because it doesn't matter whether the steward was acting dishonestly or not because the point of the parable is not about honesty. It's about shrewdness, about being smart, and I'll show you why later. And by the way, if we look at verse 8, it is not disputed that the manager himself was dishonest. If we look at verse 8, which we'll go to right now, the master praised the unrighteous manager. So the parable explicitly says that the steward, the manager, is unrighteous. Now, he might not have been acting unrighteously in this particular instance, but as I say, it doesn't matter. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely, cleverly, shrewdly. That's the point. The shrewd actions of the manager, being praised for that. And of course, the master, if we assume that refers to God the Father, he's saying, okay, you did good you did good. Why? Because you gave poor people or people who were in debt, you gave them money. It was my money, but you know, that's okay. I can handle that. You gave them money and you did it so that you would have friends. You were very smart because you're about to lose your job. You wouldn't have any way to make a living. And now you've got friends that'll, that'll take care of you. So the master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely in verse eight. Then he said, for the, the Master said, For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. Now this is a little bit enigmatic. First of all, who are the sons of light? Well, that's referring to believers. God's people, as the NIV Study Bible says. John 12:36. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Ephesians 5, 8, For you, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So you're sons of light, children of light, as John says, and as the apostle Paul says, and Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5:5, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. All right. So Jesus is making a comparison with people that believe in Jesus. Now, I've always taken this to mean, and always had trouble with it. The sons of this age are more astute in monetary affairs, and the sons of light are in monetary affairs dealing with their own people. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I think what he meant is, the sons of this age are more astute in dealing with money than the sons of light are in dealing with spiritual things in relationship to their own people. I think that's what makes sense. And so Jesus is trying to encourage, remember he's talking to the disciples as well as the Pharisees, he's trying to say, look, you need to give money to the poor. You need to not be lovers of money. This is what the whole point of this parable is about. Don't be a lover of money. So, The sons of light in dealing with their own people need to forgive debts, i.e. give money to people who need it. And as a result, if the sons of light, believers do that, they'll have people that will welcome them in heaven after money fails, money fails at death. But the sons of this age, they are not going to have that unless they give money like this unjust steward did. He was very astute in giving money away so that that he would make friends of people who normally wouldn't like him. So he would make friends in this life But the sons of the light would make friends in the next age by giving money and also spiritual things to their own people. Now, notice that the master praised the unrighteous manager, praised him. Did he praise him for acting dishonestly? Well, we don't know whether he acted dishonestly or not, but even if he had, the master wasn't praising the unrighteous manager because of his treachery or his crookedness. He was praising him because he had acted astutely. And notice that the praise came to the manager even though the master lost some money. Well, you can explain that by saying, well, he lost some money, but got some of it back. Some of it was at risk. He might have lost it all. That's probably why he wasn't worried about that. But he was happy that the man managed in order to get friends for himself. That was a shrewd business move. He, he appreciated it. The master probably was a shrewd businessman himself. Now notice, as John Gill says, that the master was impressed with the manager's artfulness, even though it cost him money. John Gill also says that the, manager, that the master was impressed with the, that the wit, not the goodness of the man, is committed by the master. The wit, not his goodness. Again, that's not the point of the parable. The point is, is to be shrewd with money. How do you be shrewd with money? You give it to people, then they're your friends. Now, the King James has an interesting translation here of Master. Kurios is translated as Lord with a capital L. So it would be the Lord praised the unrighteous manager. God the Father, I guess, praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. Actually, master is a better translation. because When you say Lord, it it sounds like God is praising the unrighteousness of the manager. As I said, he wasn't doing that, but it sounds like it. So it's not the best translation. The master praised the unrighteous manager, the master in the parable who, of course, I realize could, not necessarily, but could stand for God. But that's not important either. That's, that's a detail of the parable. that doesn't really matter. Luke 16, 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. So here's the analogy. These, this unjust steward, this Pharisee, he had money that was made unrighteously. That's probably why it was called unrighteous money. It was it was uh, made unrighteous, I guess, because it wasn't his, or maybe the master made it unrighteous. It doesn't make any difference, but it's, it's not exactly what you would call spiritual in any means, by any means. He said, and so he took this unspiritual thing and did a good thing with it. He made friends with himself. Now, he's saying, you, on the other hand, you believers in me, you sons of light, you make friends with people so that they can welcome you into eternal dwellings. Because money will make friends, but it's going to fail when you die. That's what it means when it fails, it's when you die. And when you die, it's not going to do you any good anymore. But if you sons of light will make friends with yourself, using money, even with money, giving money to the poor, whatever, if you make friends with yourself, you will build up spiritual capital, if you will, that you can take with you into heaven, into the eternal dwellings. So the point here is, it's kind of like an a fortiori argument. If these nasty Pharisees can be smart enough to use money to make friends with, to put them in a good place when things get bad, you, when things get bad, i.e. you die, you can have done things with your money, as well as with your time and with your other gifts, to make friends with people by helping them, dealing with your own people. this parable says you can help them, encourage them, build them up so that when they get to heaven, if they get there before you, they'll welcome you in, and so your reward will be there even after, after your money fails. So this is basically an anti-live-for-yourself, live-to-get-rich-in-this-life parable. That's basically what he's trying to say. It's not the easiest parable to understand, in my opinion, well, in a lot of people's opinions, but that's basically what the pole point of it is. All right, he calls it unrighteous money, as the King James has, unrighteous mammon. mammon. Now, money is not unrighteous in itself, of course, it's a neutral thing. What did Jesus mean then? Well, money is unrighteous when it is unrighteously withheld from those it could help, John Gill points out. Or you could say money is unrighteous because it is generally possessed by unrighteous people. Now, nah, that makes sense. Unrighteous money could be money that's used in an unrighteous manner in luxury or pride or intemperance. Adam Clark says unrighteous money could be money that is desired by men at the expense of salvation. Any of those will do to me, it just means money that's not used rightly. Now Matthew six twenty four has a similar exhortation. Jesus says no one can be a slave of two masters, either since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. Either or folks, money or God. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. And this is basically, this parable fits right all in with that theme. Verse 10, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. And what that means is if you can be faithful in very little, which is money, giving money to the poor by canceling their debts or whatever, if you can be faithful in that little thing, you can also be faithful in great spiritual things in the kingdom of God and whoever is unrighteous and very little and the money is the very little thing if you're unrighteous and very little and you start trying to keep up money for yourself and not give it away you're also going to be unrighteous in much in many spiritual things you're not going to be fit stewards of the kingdom of God one thing we can point out is that the steward the money he had was not his own but his masters isn't that just like us we've got money but it doesn't really belong to us it belongs to God and so therefore we ought to be wise stewards of it and cancel the debts of the poor, i.e., give money to the poor. And God won't mind that. He's got plenty more money. <laughs> faithfulness, who he who is faithful in much, is not determined by the amount entrusted to him to manage. It's faithfulness is determined by the character of the person who uses the money. So whether it's a little bit of money or a lot of spiritual Riches, whatever it is that's been entrusted to us by God, we are God's stewards. We need to manage it well so that we will have a lot of happy people meeting us when we pass through the pearly gates and see Jesus and our fellow Christians face to face. This idea is also. Given in other scriptures, Luke 19:17. Well done, good slave. He told him because you have been faithful in a very small matter, have authority over ten towns. That's in another parable, Matthew 25:21. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. I don't know about you, but how many times do you feel like you're not doing anything for God? The thing, stuff you're having is so small and so important. I don't care how small it is. I don't care how unimportant it is, we need to do it well. We need to handle the matter the best we can. I don't care if it's one person or a thousand people that are affected, it means something. We need to be as faithful as we can in little things, worry about the big things when God gives them to us, May, my, and he might not give them to us till we, till we see him in the eternal dwellings. Luke 16, verses 11 through 12, so if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? This is Jesus talking to the Pharisees. Now it says, you have not been faithful with unrighteous money because you love money so much. Who's going to trust you with what is genuine? In other words, the true lasting treasures, the spiritual treasures, not the physical monetary treasures. Not, nobody's going to trust you with that. If you can't even handle money, which they couldn't because they were lovers of money. Verse 12, and if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, in other words, the oracles of God. You haven't been faithful with all the spiritual things that God has given the Jews. You haven't been faithful with them. You've completely covered them over with, with your stupid traditions. You have acted arrogantly, and you have put burdens on the people that you yourselves are not able to carry. So who's going to give you what is your own? Who's going to give you genuine riches? Who will give you what is your own? The NIV has. Who will give you true riches? Who will give you what is your own? The NIV, I'm sorry, the NIV doesn't have true riches that refers to who will trust you with you, what is genuine in verse eleven. Then I V says who will trust you with true riches, which of course is spiritual things. The verse twelve says who will give you what is your own. Then I V says who will give you property of your own. In other words, you're not going to get spiritual riches. You're not going to get eternal life. It could refer to spiritual uh, financial riches too. God can take that away from people who are stingy, like the Pharisees were. He can take that away real easy. Verses thirteen through fifteen, and we'll finish it up. No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. I remember it when I used to teach management in college, they always would say, you know, each manager has one report. He reports to one manager, because if you have two managers, you have constant conflict. There is one form uh, form of managerial organization called matrix, where you do have two authorities one to the horizontally to the left and one vertically to the top of you and not many companies use it and of course the number one disadvantage as the textbook says is the managers can't be satisfied because one manager wants this and the other manager wants that and the poor guy in the middle doesn't know what to do he can't be slaves he can't be the slave of two masters he can't be the employee of two masters i would never want to work in a situation like like with a matrix being a slave being being managed by two managers verse 14 the pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him making fun of the son of god and it's the typical things they did verse 15 and he jesus told them the pharisees you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of others but god knows your hearts for what is highly admired by people is revolting in god's sight so basically jesus said you guys are revolting Jesus didn't mince any words, folks. There's a lot of stuff going on here in the United States of Sodom and Gomorrah, which i tell you is pretty revolting in God's sight. And if Jesus would hear, he would see people and he'd say, you know, what you're doing is disgusting, revolting. This reminds me of James 4.4. 4. James says this. This is James, the brother of Jesus, writing the book of James. Adulterer says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. By the way, this verse says you can't be the slave of two masters. You can't be the slave of God and money. The King James has mammon. Most of the modern translations get rid of that and put money because nobody knows what mammon is. Mammon is an Aramaic word, a Syriac word, and that's where that comes from. John Gill points out that the Jews of Jesus' time were notorious for the love of money. Well, how about the Americans of our time? How about the Chinese of our time? How about everybody? Everybody loves money notice that it says you either hate one and love the other that word hate sometimes is used in a relative sense as in love less here i think it makes more sense just to say hate in the true sense because there's like for example there's a verse that says you got to hate your mother and father and that just means you love them less than jesus it doesn't mean you actually absolutely hate them but here i think that that mild sense of hate doesn't work as well here i think it means strong hate because you either love god and hate money or hate unrighteous money or you Love unrighteous money and you hate God, it goes together. Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees with interpreting that hate in a mild sense. He says that here showing he says here quote showing that the two here intended are in uncompromising hostility to each other, an awfully searching principle. Yes, they're in uncompromising hostility to each other. You better if you want to love God, you better forget about holding on to money. And if you live in a prosperous city si- class or a prosperous country or you are a rich businessman, nothing wrong with being rich. But I'll tell you what, God will test you with that money. He'll watch it disappear. He'll watch it look like water running through a sieve. He'll watch. He'll make you put your gold coins in a bag with holes in it and the coins run out and roll right down the street away from you. When it says the Pharisees were scoffing at Jesus because of his preaching on money here with that parable, it's Gillen Clark says the Greek is literally, they lifted up their noses at him. Lifted up their noses at the Son of God. Bad career move. Luke 16:16, 16, 16. And that's for next audio. We're finished with this audio. Hope you enjoyed it. Next time we'll talk about what Jesus' attitude toward the law was. We'll talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. A little bit of theology. Hope you enjoyed this audio.